And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into, Ju- into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Just so you know, this is about an 80-mile journey that Joseph has to take. You guys know the story, but maybe you don't know that when Caesar is calling for the census, everyone to return and register in the city. Most likely, Joseph owned land in Bethlehem, even though he's from Galilee. So they're taking an 80-mile hike while she's pregnant and had to get to Bethlehem because we know prophecy had to be fulfilled and God's word was not going to be rendered void. And so that's why he brings, otherwise you would just not do that ever. And in verse 6 it says, So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be Uh, For her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, capital S, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, most likely strips of cloth that were to enable a child to grow and not be stunted in their growth in their legs and different things, and laid him in a manger, which was a feeding trough for donkeys, horses, all kinds of animals. Why? Because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds, living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe... Wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. This is how you're going to know the Savior of the world has come. You're going to find a baby in a barn. Trust me, it's going to be good. And suddenly there was with this angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. You know the story. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let's not go anywhere. That's not what they said. They said, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Let's pray. Lord, what a powerful chunk of scripture. And yet, at the same time, Lord, we are to blame for sometimes letting the story lose its meaning. And I pray, Lord, that tonight, Lord, whatever it is that's occupying our minds, what we're going to do afterwards, what we're doing this weekend, who's sitting next to us, Lord, I pray that you would prove that you are worth our time, worth our attention. Nothing in the world compares to your love to knowing who you are, that you're a living God that wants to speak to us as people. And Lord, I'm just a human being. I don't deserve to be up here right now, but you've called me to be here, and you've called these young adults to sit here and to listen to what you have to say. So teach us, Lord, from your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, 
I'm going to title this message, Curated for Good News. Curated for Good News. We're going to focus on the shepherds tonight. A lot of times you could focus on different characters in the story, right? Obviously you want to focus on Jesus. But it's interesting to me that the angels appeared to shepherds. What do you guys know about shepherds? A rhetorical question you don't have to say out loud. What do you know about shepherds in those days especially? Because when we think of shepherds, we think of things like, if you're a Bible student, well, Jesus is the good shepherd. And, and we are sheep. And him as a good shepherd, he lays down his life for the flock. And if there's one sheep that leaves, he leaves the 99 sheep to chase after the one. It doesn't matter how far away you run away from God, he'll always come chasing after you because he loves you. He's always been about pursuing you. The story from Genesis to Revelation is about how God pursues us, not how we found God. We weren't even looking for God. Yet God chose in his sovereignty, in his love, to step down into time, into our world, and say, here I am. And he died on the cross for us, so all we have to do is accept his free gift of salvation, repent of our ways, and follow him. That's it. That's always been the story, and that's what we know a little bit about shepherds. But these shepherds in particular, it's really interesting because in those days, shepherds were not highly esteemed at all. In fact, many of religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the people that knew the Bible inside and out in the Old Testament, the people that knew scripture, the people that you look at and be like, that guy is a really holy guy. That guy knows his Bible. He prays a lot. I mean, if there's anyone who you would think is close to God, it's probably these people. These people actually thought that the shepherds were not close to God at all. I mean, they were out in the field somewhere, not participating in the religious activities that everyone else did. I mean, think about it. If you were all the way outside of the city of Jerusalem, how in the world were you going to worship? How are you going to come to the temple? How are you going to be able to be observed to make sure you're keeping all of the laws? Right? Everybody knows, as a teenager, you know, when your parents are watching over your back, what are you looking at on the computer? Who are you texting? You know what it's like for people to always be about the rules. I'm not saying your parents are wrong. What I am saying is you know what it's like to always have people on your back. And so the religious leaders are like, how in the world are we going to keep these shepherds in check? They're filthy. They're dirty. Nobody likes them. But wait. Angels didn't visit the religious leaders. The angels didn't come to King Herod. He didn't come to Caesar Augustus. He appeared to shepherds. Well, let's think about this. Okay, if you're God and you want to, to get your message across, who would you trust that message to? Somebody you can trust, right? So why would you talk to nobodies, people that literally no one would talk to? And you don't even have a chance of them believing you, right? Like, if you give these to shepherds that don't even participate in religious activities, you don't know if they pray, you don't know if they go to church, why would you give it to, th to these guys that are already outside of the city, outside of the church, with this message that will change the world? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Jesus wants everyone to know, God wants you and I to know, that there's no person that's outside of his reach, there's not one person on this planet. How many people wonder, like, and this is maybe an objection to Christianity. What about all the people that are in Africa that have never heard the gospel in a remote village out there in Nepal or some, uh, some place? How do we know that God loves that person? Well, I can tell you, God loves me, and I'm a pretty bad person. So if God loves me and God loves you, there's a chance that he loves that person, even though they don't have Wi-Fi. And if God loves that person, I think, if you look at the Bible, you look at the pattern of the scriptures— that he finds ways to reach the outsider. But for these shepherds, what's really interesting is these shepherds weren't even looking for God. 
They weren't studying the Bible. This wasn't like the wise men who were following a star. These people were literally outside, not doing anything except taking care of their sheep. But this is what I think is important for us to understand. Everyone look up here. This is the first point tonight, that God interrupts our routine. Very often, God will step in and interrupt you as you are working, mind your own business, doing your own thing. Could care less about what happens in the city. Could care less about what happens over there, what's happening in the world. I mean, how many of us, if we're honest, think about on a daily basis what's happening in Aleppo right now. How many of us even know what Aleppo is? How many of us know the injustice that's happening in the world? And I think, in part, the reason is it's not because we're apathetic. It's not because you guys are monsters, I'm a monster, whatever. But we have other things that we're focusing on, right? So there's, there's this uh, philosophy professor. His name is Andreas Elpidoro. Great name. He's assistant professor in philosophy at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. He wrote this article, and it's all about boredom. Boredom. So he ventures to say that many of us, if you think about what boredom is, we're always trying to escape boredom. But he says, what if boredom isn't actually a bad thing? Like, in and of itself, it's something that nobody wants, but what if boredom is a lot like pain? Pain isn't good in and of itself, right? But pain shows you that there's a problem that we need to be avoiding. When you have a pain in your foot, you need to address the pain, otherwise something's going to happen to your foot. You're going to need an infection, you could get gangrene, you could die. Who knows? So pain, even though it doesn't feel good, it actually helps you solve the problem. And he says, what if boredom is in that exact same way? What if boredom is pointing to a problem that we have, that we are in a mundane process and we should be escaping it, that something is missing? This is what he says in his own words. He says, often boredom arises as the result of the perception of a mismatch, a gap between the need for stimulation and its availability. We want something that simply is not there, and boredom is our awareness of that absence. Now, here's the thing about pain. When you have pain, what you should do is address it. What you should not do is numb it. But now think about this. Because if we had a world without boredom, let's say we just completely numb the pain, we just distracted ourselves from the pain of boredom, that means that we would literally find nothing boring. That means you would hear a teacher say the same thing over and over and over and over. You watch a really boring movie, and you're just like, oh, this is so entertaining. I love this so much. You'd be crazy, right? It'd be kind of weird if people did not get bored at certain things. You're on a road trip. You're just staring into space. You're like, wow, I'm so stimulated right now, right? We would look at that person and say there's something wrong with them. So what we don't want is to be distracted. What we want is to solve the problem. But what is it that we do with boredom? I'm about to, for the very first time, coin my own phrase. I'm going to call it value hunting. Value hunting. And this is what I mean by that. I think this is how our generation, your generation, my generation, deals with boredom. We are always hunting for value. So what we do, in fact, is we distract ourselves from every instance where we can have a dull moment. So what do you do? 
you're shopping with your mom because your mom's like, you have to go shopping with me because you didn't do it last week and you don't spend time with your family and I, no, no, no. And whatever, and you're like, fine. So what do you do? You're on your phone, TBH, like for a TBH, right? Why do we do that? Why is that even a thing? And listen, you do that, it's fine. Because even the people that don't do it, do it in different ways, and I'll explain in a second. Why do we do that? It's almost like a form of currency, right? If you like my photo, I will tell you something really nice, and I'll pretend like it's honest. That's what we do. Why do we do that? Why do we care? It's because we value other people's opinions of us, and we want to escape our current situation of feeling like we're inadequate. So you don't do that. What else do you do? Every dull moment, you may not go on Instagram and look at everyone else's photo, but what do you do? You text other people. Hey, what you doing right now? Hey, what's up? Why do we do that? Why do we just start a conversation with a random person? We're value hunting. We're looking for someone else to affirm us, give us value. And let me prove it to you, because here's what you wouldn't do. You wouldn't text someone who you know would not text you back. You wouldn't, like, ask out a girl, and she rejects you, like, really bad, like I have in the past, and then feel, like, out of the blue, like, you know what? I'm going to try again, see what happens. You're not going to do that, because they're not going to affirm you back. So you're looking, and this is where you got to be really careful, because you and I know, guys and girls alike, you often will flirt, not because you actually want to date the person, not because you want to be a relationship, a committed relationship with the person, but because you simply want them to esteem you or give you value. Value hunting. So next time you're on your phone in a dull moment, ask yourself, what am I looking for right now? Am I value hunting? Am I looking for someone else to esteem me, to think that I'm awesome, to say something about me, to comment on my photos, to like my photos to give me more followers or whatever, am I looking for someone else to esteem me because I feel at this moment inadequate? Well, here's the problem with that. If that's what we do, we are distracting ourselves from the main issue. The main issue, which is we need someone else to value us who can give us a permanent kind of value. Where it's not fickle, it's not dependent on whether or not I think that person is telling the truth. Because we know that he is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. We know a person, it, it's not like you're asking someone to give you value and say, oh, I think you're beautiful. And we're like, deep down inside, do they actually think that? Do they actually think that I'm, because here's what you do, right? You're hanging out with people and you're always wondering, if I tell them this secret, are they going to betray me? Are they going to gossip about me? If I tell them this thing, how do I know I can trust that person? But what you and I need is a person that you can trust, you can tell anything to, and you know that because he laid down his life for you and I. And say you're worth giving up everything. He came down, good news, he came down, left heaven to come to earth, never had to, to prove his love for you and I. So here's the thing, you and I are about a routine every single day. We have routines, don't we? Some of us have habits that we can't kick. Bad habits, sinful habits, looking at things on the internet you shouldn't be looking at. And you need God to interrupt your routine. Some of us have habits of fear, right, where you're always constantly afraid. And whatever situation it is, and many of you I know because you have broken, broken families, broken homes, you're always wondering if you can trust this person. You're wondering if you can trust a man, trust a woman, trust an adult, trust a person your own age. Always wondering if this person will betray you. I've heard it once said that there's only two natural fears in life. 
the fear of falling, and the fear of loud noises. Everything else is learned. And what we learn to fear are the people that sin against us, the situations that, what if this happens? What if it doesn't work out the way that I planned? And what we need is God to come down and interrupt your fear. I remember there's been so many times that I've had, you know, and you guys know about my anxiety where I've had panic attacks and, and whatever. But then the moment where you're so used to the same thing happening over and over again of you have the feeling like, like impending doom, something's going to happen, but then God and his peace interrupts you. That's the kind of peace that you and I need. Not a peace that's kind of like you're distracting yourself from the problem, you're ignoring the problem, but you need a peace that surpasses all understanding, regardless of whether you believe it or not, think about it or not, God comes down and interrupts your fear. Some of us need God to interrupt our disconnectedness from society. And I'm not just talking about the world. I'm not talking about Aleppo. I'm talking about the fact that we are ignoring the most important problems in life, the most important things in life. Because what you and I do is, because we're always value hunting, looking for other people to esteem us, we're not asking the big questions because we haven't left enough gap to, to realize that there's a problem. We're always numbing the pain and not asking ourselves, why is there pain to begin with? Now, what I'm not saying is, once you're a Christian, you're never bored again. What I am saying is, even when you're a Christian, you need to constantly remind yourself of who values you, of who loves you. That's what this, this is. I mean, the story of Christmas is so important. Why do we do this every single year? Because we say it's so important to remember that Jesus came down and interrupted our sinful world. It's so important to remember that so that we don't feel that lostness, that impending doom, that sense of fear. This is why the angels said do not fear, right? I mean, shepherds are just kind of there in the flock, but then God shows up. He sends his angels to give a message to these people that are on the outskirts of society. You don't have to even be in church for God to interrupt you sometimes. You could be right at home. But when he knocks on the door of your heart, make sure that you let him in. That you let him know that he is welcome in your heart. There are some people that seek it out. And what we see, if you look at verse 25, there's a man named Simeon who actually sought out, who was looking for. It wasn't like a surprise. He was looking for the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Verse 25 says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. So they're the ones that are surprised. They're just, oh, wow, I didn't realize this is a big deal. Verse 34, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So Simeon had been paying attention to the prophecies in the Old Testament. 
Prophecy is being a foretelling of the future by God himself, since only God knows the future. None of us have the capability of looking into the future and knowing what's going to happen next. But God does because he's all-knowing. And even from the very beginning in Genesis, there was a promise that was given during the whole situation when Adam and Eve had fallen. They had sinned against God. And God told them that there would be a curse. There would be death. But he also said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that I will put enmity between you and the woman, you being Satan, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Really cryptic sentence. You don't get from that like, oh, and Jesus is coming in some time in the future. But people are just like, what does that mean? Because women don't have seeds. They have eggs. So why would they say her seed? So people would think about this like, what is God talking about? And so this is a question, like, what, what does this mean? Later on, there was talks about there would be a prophet that would rise among them like Moses. So then you have another hint, like, okay, there is someone who's going to rise up from among us, but what does that actually mean? And then in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, <clears throat> But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So now you have even more clues on who this person will be and where he will be born. And this is why you know it's the word of God. There's no other book like it where it tells the future before it happens. We have scriptures older than Jesus. I mean, you can go see him in the museum like I have, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Older than Jesus, the books of Isaiah that talk about Jesus before he was born. Talks about crucifixion before it was invented. All these different details. I mean, that's crazy. And if you're not a Christian, you at least have to look at that and say, what do I do with that? What in the world do I do with a text that talks about Jesus before he's born? And we can talk about the specific prophecies later, but the point of this being this, that Simeon was looking. He wasn't stuck in the little circle he was in, but he was saying, I want to see Jesus. I want to know him. And the point was this. In the very last verse, it says this that we read. Verse 35, a sword will pierce through your own heart also, through your own soul also, that the Thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And this is the thing about Jesus. That once you see him, you can't unsee him. If you and I, being disconnected from the world, right? I'll use Aleppo because we talked about it a couple times. If you and I went to Syria, or you went to the Middle East in general, and you saw some of the destruction that's happening, you saw people, children, being murdered right before your eyes, would you come back and be the same person? Would you go about your school day the same way? Like, I'm not saying people should go and just watch videos and what, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, if you saw it right in front of you, you could not be the same person. In a similar way, you can't see the savior of the world and remain the same. Because once you know the truth, the truth is dangerous. And that's this, once you know that there is no other way to get to heaven, then through Jesus Christ, you can't unhear that. Once you know that this is the truth, that Jesus really had lived at some point in time in the universe, and not only had he lived, but he laid down his life for you, that he died for you, so that you, can, so that you don't have to live for the burden of yourself anymore. You don't have to live for people's expectations. You don't have to value hunt, but you can be appreciated. You can appreciate the fact that Jesus loves you so much that he would give his own life for you. Once you hear that, you can't unhear it. You can be numb to it. You can distract yourself from it. You can say, I'm going about my daily life. But you can't undo it. And this is why when you have light shining, 
Darkness does one of two things. It pulls back and people run into the darkness or they choose to approach the light. But you can't be indifferent about light shining in darkness. You have to have an action. So my question to you tonight, everyone look up here, is what will you do about Jesus? You know the Christmas story. You live in America. You guys know that at one point in history, Jesus became a child. He came into our world. What are we to do about that? You can make your decision and say, I don't believe Jesus is God. And that's a valid conclusion. I think you're wrong. But you can come to a conclusion about that. But to say I'm going to remain indifferent is not an option we have. Either he is or he isn't. And here's the thing. Our second point for tonight is this. God doesn't cater to the value systems of the world. God does not cater to the value systems of the world. Look at verse 12 with me. The angel said this, this will be the sign to you that you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Because you and I can have our own terms about things on how God should approach you and give you a decision about eternity, heaven and hell. Will you spend the rest of your life being in heaven or being in hell? You can decide in your own mind, like, I think this, these are appropriate measures to get into heaven, to get into hell. And what you find is your measure always includes you and excludes other people that aren't like you. But that's besides the point. The point being this, that oftentimes God doesn't, I mean, not oftentimes, but this is true. God doesn't cater to the value systems of the world. Once again, if you and I were going to choose how God would show up in our universe, superhero, a politician, I don't know, he'd have superpowers, comes down and just rocks the place and redoes everything. You know, that's, that's how I would do it in my ingenuity. But he chose to send his son as a child. Here's the problem with children. They are helpless. They need to be fed. Jesus needed to be fed. He wasn't a super baby. It's not like, I got this mom. It's like a two-year-old, you know? He's just like zap, 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 and he just like feeds himself, cleans his own diaper. I mean, that's kind of weird. I don't know how it would feel taking care of the God of the universe as he's a baby. Imagine being the babysitter. Some of you babysit, right? It's like, can you watch Jesus for me? And just make sure he doesn't die because he needs to save the world. Okay. I'm pretty trustworthy. It's like every time he chokes, it's like, oh, can you save yourself or do I have to step in? Right? As a child, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. Especially because this is what happened, right? Herod made a decree. He's like, let's just kill all the children. And that's why they had to flee to Egypt. I mean, this is a serious threat to them. It wasn't like Herod's like, I'm going to kill all the children. And Jesus like, but don't worry. I got this. I can get rid of Herod. They actually had to flee. They had to do something about it. They had to protect Jesus. I mean, that's a weird thought to think about. But here's the thing. The reason he came as a child is so that you and I can relate to him. The reason why he came as a child is because he had to become perfectly human. Fully human in every respect. So he could live the life that you and I should have lived, but we didn't. He can atone for that life and atone for our death on the cross. It wasn't enough that Jesus would just come to the world and die and be like, oh, that's it. So your sins are forgiven. He actually had to live a life in order to atone for the one that you didn't live. So he can relate with all the things that we do. So he's not a distant God, but we actually have a person who can relate with the temptations that we have. And that's what Jesus did. So he doesn't cater to the value systems that we often have, the things that we think about. And here's another thing. 
not only Jesus coming in the world, right? Jesus is the word, but think about his written word, right? If you're going to get God's message across, how would you do it if you were God, right? I mean, just think about it. If I were God and I want to get message across, make sure no one messes up, I would probably have laser beams in the sky that are like permanent for all eternity so no one can mess with them. Or I would like inscribe it on some like, like part of the earth, like in stone, kind of like what he did with the Ten Commandments or something, but make it permanent so that no one could mess with it. But he chose to send people who would write parts of the Bible, 40 different authors, all spread out throughout the earth and different time periods. And it would seem that people would say, well, how do you know that people didn't change the Bible? How do you know that? And we can look into that and we can scrutinize that. And we, can, we can tell that we have the same book today that they did. But besides that, just think about it. Like, that's crazy. That's counterintuitive. I wouldn't do it that way. But God doesn't cater to our value systems. The, the things that we think make sense, God's like, I don't want to do it that way. I'm going to do my own thing. You want to approach kings, but I want to approach the peasants. You want to reach these famous people? I want to reach the shepherds. I want to reach the people that no one wants to reach. Because that's who God is, and he loves us. And wants to show you that your value system, what you think... Like, when you're value hunting, you're talking to the most popular people. You want to get the attention of famous people on Instagram or on social media or whatever. Why do we do that? Because we want them to esteem us. But if Jesus had an Instagram, I don't think he would be following the famous people. So what he did when he came to this earth is he spent time with individuals that no one else wanted to spend time with. That's why people made fun of him. They said, why is he spending time with prostitutes, with sinners, with drunk people? People that literally would have no effect on society. But God proved them wrong. Because those people who had the transformed lives, like Paul the Apostle who was running away from God, who was persecuting Christians, he showed his glory and uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. He always has and he always will. Here's the other thing too. If you think about what the shepherds were, once again, I, I'd said before that the religious leaders didn't like the shepherds, right? They didn't participate in the religious activities, ceremonies, etc., and if you think about it, in our modern day, you have certain religious systems that say things like, well, if you want to get close to God, these are the things that you have to do. You have to go to church every single week. And you have to do penance. And you have to confess those sins to a certain person every single week. You have to pray to saints. You have to be a good Christian. You have to be a good... And this is what it's all about. It's all about what you do again. And once again, although that sounds intuitive right that's what you and I would do if we do something wrong we should make it right again and tell God like I'm sorry and I'll, I'll make it better but Jesus says no I'm giving you a message of grace you know like you don't have to go to church to go to heaven you know like you can never read the Bible you can never read the Bible and go to heaven what did Alan just say that we're Calvary Chapel the thief on the cross never read the Bible as a Christian you right like maybe he read the Old Testament growing up or something. I don't know. But they didn't have scrolls. They just went to the synagogue or whatever. He was a thief. He didn't have time to do his devotions. He didn't have time to pray other than, oh, Lord. And he prayed to Jesus right there. And that was it. And that was enough. And he went to heaven. Well, why do we do those things? It's not so that God can love you more. It's not so that God can like your Facebook photos or whatever. It's so that, that you have a relationship with God. That he knows you and you know him. It's for your benefit. It's not so God can look at you and be like, oh, yeah, I really love that person now because he's doing all these great things. 
You can walk away from this youth group. You can walk away from church, never come back, and still go to heaven. But here's the question. What are you doing while you're here on this planet? Who is it all for? Will you get to heaven wishing you had done things differently? I'm asking you a question. Everyone look up here. This is a good question. What do you want to have accomplished at the end of your life? At the end of your life, you take your last breath. What do you want to have had accomplished? As you're sitting there on your deathbed, whatever it is, and you're, you're, you're satisfied, you're like, at least I got to do this. What is that? What is that one thing? And most of us, it's such petty stuff that does not matter for eternity. But imagine this. This is what I was thinking about. Trip out on this. Catch this. Ready? If it's true that we have the most people that has ever lived on the planet at any point in time, imagine we get to heaven and people are like, yep, that's the generation that evangelized the most people in all of human history. That's the generation? Oh, yeah, that person? That person? saw a revival that nobody else in all of human history, all of humankind, since the time of Jesus, since the time of Adam and Eve, no one has ever saw before. We can do that. I mean, that's, that's thinking in terms of eternity, right? Like, that's eternal fame. That's awesome. But most of us don't think like that. They're like, well, that's for, like, heaven. I mean, like, think about this. In 500 million years, because that actually happens, in 500 million years, that's not an exaggeration, what will it matter for this brief 70, 100 years that we spent here on this earth unless it can last for 500 million years? Unless we bring something eternal. Like, no one will care what albums you wrote, what trophies you got. No one will care who you dated, who you married. No one will care about that. But they say, oh yeah, that's the generation that changed the world. Man, that would be cool. I want to do that. I'm going to write that down. See if it happens. Here's the last thing I'll say, and then I'll be done. I'll leave you alone. Third point is joy must be sought out. Joy must be sought out. Yes, God interrupts us. He showed up. We weren't looking for him. We weren't expecting him, but he came anyway. And it's true that God doesn't cater to our value systems. He says, yeah, that's nice that you think that, like, I'm going to come and show up and do this thing, but I don't, I don't work that way. I'm actually going to say, like, I'm going to do it all, and you can sit back and just accept the fact that I've done it all and call me your Lord and Savior and choose to live for me, and that's it. All those things are true. At the same time, joy must be sought out. You want to be miserable? Stay miserable. Be value hunting. Always looking for people that can't satisfy you, give you what you really want. Always be constantly bored. Always looking to be distracted. But if you want joy, you have to look for it, and this is what happens in verse 10. Verse 10 this is what the shepherds do, because the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Great joy. So good news. This is what's happening, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, so far away, right? Not far away, but out there, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find, if you're looking, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. This is it. It wasn't just like this message like, all right, good news, great joy. And that's it. So see you later. I mean, he's in the city and you guys are busy because you got sheep and stuff. And I know, like, you don't go into the city very often. You're not city people. You don't like the city, traffic, subways, 
a lot of money. I mean, tolls. You don't want to pay tolls. So stay out there, and it'll be fine. And you can, like, read the headlines later. Like, oh, Jesus, he saved the world. Great. No, he says, if you want it, you're going to have to go get it. You're going to have to go find the babe lying in a manger and bring, you'll be able to see those good tidings of great joy. I know you're not supposed to play the lottery and stuff and do scratch-offs, but let's say that you get a scratch-off ticket. And this scratch-off ticket actually is a multi-million dollar winner. It's like $300 million, and it's yours. You have the ticket. Praise the Lord. Even though you sinned by getting a lottery ticket, I'm not saying you sinned. I've done it before. Even though you made a mistake by buying a lottery ticket, now you can use all the money for Jesus. Yes. And you're like, I'll give $200 million to the church, $50 million to the church, and like keep $250 million for myself or whatever you're thinking. It does you no good to not cash it in. It's absolutely worthless to have a $300 million ticket that's the winning ticket if you don't go to 7-Eleven or wherever you go and be like, I need $300 million. And the guy's like, oh, all right. And he just brings out $300 million and gives it to you right there. It doesn't happen that way. Ask me how I know. <laughs> what you need to do is you need to cash in the ticket. And yet how many people have every access to God? Think about this. God removed the veil of separation between the holies of holies and the people. He came into our world. He became a man. He died on the cross for your sins. He resurrected, showed up to people, wrote it in the Bible, and said, here it is. So what's keeping you from God? Because Jesus did it all. He literally made it as easy as possible for you to accept his free gift of salvation. But the question is to you, are you going to go and seek it out? Are you going to find great joy? Are you going to spend time in the word of God? Because listen, I can't make you joyful. I can't make you have a relationship with God. I can't make your prayer time more exciting or make your devotional time more exciting. But you can sit down and be like, I'm not going to move until God speaks to me. And you can experience joy. And this is what Jesus said in John 10, 10, right? I've come that they would have joy and that more abundantly. If you don't know that joy, you are missing out and you're always settling for the counterfeits of hunting for, for your own value, looking for everyone else's opinion, and you're missing out on what God really has for you. There's a topic in social media called curating, and that's why I've titled this message Curating for Good News. Curating is a marketing term to talk about, like anytime you're on I know you guys don't go on Facebook, but you go on Instagram, and you're like on Amazon.com, and then like you go back on Instagram, you're like, whoa, why, why is this product showing up on this ad? That's really creepy. It's because there's like a really creepy guy that's looking through the camera on your phone. It's like, oh, I see what you're looking at, and then just, I'm just kidding. That's not true. <laughs> what is true, just making sure you're paying attention. What is true is all of those social media sites sell your information to advertisers so that they can curate the content that they think you will be interested in. Hence the term curating. They want to take content that they think you will look at and be like, if you've been surfing on Amazon and you want to buy a new, I don't know what you buy. What do you buy? I don't know. New Barbie doll. That's what teenagers buy, Barbie dolls. So you want a new Barbie doll. 
And then you're looking on and you're like, oh, wow, it's that Barbie doll I want. And because you see it so many times, you're like, fine, I'll buy it. And you buy it on Amazon Prime, comes in two days, and you're poor. And you use your parents' money, and you're still poor. <laughs> but that's where curating is. So here's the thing I want to leave you with this evening. You have the choice to curate your own content of your life. You have the choice to be ignorant of the things of God, to be ignorant of reality, or to say, I'm going to spend time in the word of God because when I do that, I will know true life. When I'm living in my small social circle, I'm living in a fantasy world. A world where one day I'm going to have to wake up to reality and people are going to have expectations. I'm like, you need to get a job. You need to... They have all these expectations because I wasn't spending time in reality. I didn't really know what was going on in the world. But how much more if you spend time with the creator of the universe who knows all things, knows you, has a plan for your life, loves you, and died for you so that you don't have to live for yourself. Let's pray.